For 2,000 years, out of joy, the Church of Jesus Christ has spread across the globe. For 2,000 years, men, women, and children have joined themselves to this church, bonded by a common faith. For 2,000 years, these people together have by faith proclaimed what they believe to the world. Many have used a simple summary, the Apostles' Creed, to do just that. This fall at Holy Cross, with the church through the ages, we do the same. And look closer at how this simple creed has summarized the teaching of the Bible and has gone from being just what Christians believe to what I believe. All right, kids ages 3 to pre-K can head uh, into the back for Holy Cross Kids Worship if you'd like. The rest of you, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Ephesians. That's in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible... uh, morning might be a little confusing because we're going to be jumping around a good bit, but uh, don't worry, all the, everything's going to be projected behind me. The, the main text is in your bulletin, it's in your order of worship. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, there's several in the back, we'd love to give one to you. So just grab one of those before you head out of here. So most of you know that we are, we are spending the fall, and have been spending the fall, looking at the biblical truth that's communicated to us in summary form in what's traditionally been called the Apostles' Creed. Apostles' Creed is about, I don't know, 1,600 years old or so. Uh, and it's, it was formulated as a way to summarize the teachings of the Bible, the kind of core teachings of the Bible, to see what it is that we believe as Christians. We've looked at what it says about God the Father. We've looked at what it says about Jesus the Son, and now we turn to look at what it says about the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Now, the Reformed tradition of which this church is a part, and if that's not familiar language, you just disregard it, but the Reformed tradition of which this church is a part has a bit of a bad reputation when it comes to the Holy Spirit. Uh, Some of that is due to bias, quite frankly, the bias that... Uh, one of the biases being that the notion that if anything is of the Spirit, it must be spontaneous. That's um, not biblical, but interesting. Uh, but because of the fact that re- the Reformed tradition, we, we, um, we don't do spontaneity really well. So uh, because we don't do spontaneity really well, and the bias is that if anything is going to be of the Spirit, it must be spontaneous. So therefore, what, uh, what we're about must not be of the Spirit. So that's one of the things. But, but there are good reasons why we have a bad reputation, too, because some of that is due to the fact that in our tradition, uh, we have a bit of a resistance to that which we can't fully explain, predict, or control, which is kind of human. Uh, but that's one of our things, too. And the Spirit is very clearly not that. I mean, Jesus said himself, the Spirit is often only seen in the effects of what he does. In John 3, Jesus says that just like the wind, you see the wind blowing the trees. You don't see the wind, you just see the leaves blown. In the same way, it's the same with the Spirit. He kind of does what he wants. He's free, sovereign, and, and frankly, that's, that's hard for humans to wrestle with. So this morning, what we want to do is we want to, we, we're looking to shine a light on, um, frankly, that person of the Trinity, that person of the Godhead, who very intentionally likes to stay in the background. Okay? So, um, if you have your Bibles open, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. If you'd stand, that's our habit here. Uh, as we stand under the authority of God's Word, we're going to be reading just two verses, verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1. As we're doing that, let me just remind 
all of us that this is God's word. It is not something we picked for ourselves. It lays claim on us, uh, and God speaks to us in it. So let's hear it as if we truly, truly believe that, okay? In him, that is Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Would you pray with me? Father, over this time, we ask your blessing. Holy Spirit, we ask that right now that you would let yourself be known. We're going to learn in a few minutes, and and many of us have already come to know that you delight in bringing glory to the Father and to the Son. But now, Lord, we, we ask that you would show yourself, reveal yourself, not just in the word spoken, but in its effect on us. Because if there's any effect by the word preached, it's going to come because you, Holy Spirit, are working in our hearts to open them, to impress the truth upon us, to grow faith in us, to give us repentance. So we ask that you would do that for your glory's sake, for our good, and for the good ultimately of our city, because as we are directed and led and filled with you, others can know life as well. So we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we have a ton to get to this morning, so I'm not going to do a whole lot by way of introduction. Um, We've spent five weeks on the person and work of Jesus, and we're spending one week on the Holy Spirit. Okay? Uh, Now, that's not my fault. That's what the creed does. And so if you want to blame someone, blame the framers of the creed 1,600 years ago there before the presence of God. So you can put in a call. Uh, But... Um, frankly, that's not enough time. It's not enough time to do this, especially because of um, the differences of opinion. I guess we can call them that amongst Christians as to who the the person and work of the Holy Spirit is. Uh, I would even say some confusion that comes along with the understanding of the Holy Spirit. So uh, with that in mind, our text this week will be primary, this, this Ephesians 1 thing that we just read, but we're going to be jumping off a lot, so um, most of those verses are going to be projected behind me back there, so that you don't have to do Bible hide-and-seek. Um, if you like to do Bible hide-and-seek, please do, but I'm not going to like slow down so you can get to where you need to go, because it's going to be behind me. Um, the different passages are also listed in your outline, uh, so, that, so that we can all follow along. Here's, here's, here's what that outline is going to tell you, is that we're going to look at, at, at this passage, we're going to look at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in three ways. We're going to look at who he is, who the Holy Spirit is, what he does, and why it matters. Who he is, what he does, and why it matters. Okay? And this ultimately is what we're going to see, that the Holy Spirit is the means and the goal of the Christian life. That he's the means to the Christian life, and he's the, ultimately the goal of it. So let's get into this. First, let's look at who the Holy Spirit is, okay? Now, the plain answer is simply this. The Holy Spirit is God, okay? If, if you've been a Christian a long time or, or just are a Christian, like, that, that may not be surprising to you, the Holy Spirit being uh, God, but uh, that's nowhere near as simple as it sounds. Like, why do Christians think this? Well, there's a bunch of reasons. I'm only going to look at a couple uh, for the sake of time. If you look uh, right at the first two verses of the Bible, some hints about this are given, right? So in Genesis 1, you have the creation of all things, right? In the first verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
And then in verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Now, what you have in that is a poetical way of saying that the world is chaotic. Everything is chaotic. And right at the beginning, we see the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, these, these first couple chapters in Genesis are big in Christian theology because God creates out of nothing. The, the smart-sounding Latin phrase for that is ex nihilo, right? That he creates out of nothing. In other words, God didn't shape what was there and form it. There was nothing. There was God. He spoke, and it came into being. Okay? He created out of nothing. And, and he creates out of love. What we mean by that is that God didn't need creation. He didn't need us. He didn't need the universe to somehow give him something that he lacked. God lacked nothing. He's sufficient in himself, independent of all things. In other words, he doesn't need anything, and, and he's completely satisfied in himself. He has life in and of himself, but he creates, not out of need, right? Humanity often creates out of some need, right? We create a tractor because we're sick, pushing a plow. We create, you know, things because of something we need. God creates out of fullness, Completely different. So in the beginning, again, you have God creating. And then, like I said, you have Genesis 1, 1, 1 verse 2, where the Spirit of God is hovering over the water. So what does this tell us? Well, it tells us, first and foremost, that the Spirit of God exists apart from creation. Creation is formless, it's void, it's chaotic, and the Spirit is separate, distinct from creation. He's involved in creating. And that's huge, because in the Scriptures, the Scriptures, unlike a lot of... Um, mythical kind of fantastical religions where, where um, different entities are involved in creation, normally in some kind of conflict. In the Bible, the only one who creates is God. And second, he's hovering over the waters of the deep, right? Like I said in a second ago, in the Old Testament, that's like, especially the waters, waters of the deep is an image for chaos, right? Which makes sense if you're a desert people. If you live in a desert, the ocean is not exactly the calm place. You don't get it. You don't understand it. It's crazy. Storms blow up all of a sudden, and you don't know how that works. And so the, the ocean, the waters are chaotic. The spirit, we see in, these, in this verse, is restraining and bringing order out of chaos. That's something that God does. Only God. Okay? And so as the Old Testament progresses, we're given hints at this kind of complexity in God. Hints. Not the fullness of, of that, but hints. But we, we come to see it in its fullness in the New Testament, right? In the baptism of Jesus, when Jesus is being baptized in the Jordan by John, we hear the voice of the Father. We see the Son, he's being baptized, and we see the Spirit descending upon the Son. There's a complexity in God all at the same time happening. The Spirit in the New Testament is someone who can be grieved, Ephesians 4, verse 30 says that he can be grieved, which means that he's not a life force, right? The Spirit of God is not the, the good side of the force, right? Forces can't be grieved. Persons can. Holy Spirit is a person. But we're also told that you can blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Blaspheme. Like, that's a big religious word. But it's something that in the Bible is not, you, I can't blaspheme you. No offense. I mean, I can insult you, but I can't blaspheme you. To blasph- you can, blaspheming is something you can only do to God. 
So the Holy Spirit is seen as someone who can be blasphemed. He's God. It, but it's in Matthew 28, though, that we get really specific. Right? So in the Bible, God's name is a really big deal. If, if you're reading it, you'll see things like um, his name uh, dwelt in the temple, that his name dwells places, which is weird. Like, how does a name live somewhere? But when, what, we are, what we are to understand is that everywhere where we see God's name dwelling, that's God. God is where his name is. And so uh, God reveals his name to Moses. God's name dwells in the temple, in the tabernacle, and that's where God is. So in, in Matthew 28, Jesus commands us, we see it right here, to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations and to baptize them into the name of God. But look at that name. Verse 19, he says, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is named as part of the name of God. So as, as Christians have worked this out, we've come up with this, this thing called the Trinity. It's a way of describing the complexity of, of persons in the Godhead, that there are three God, or three persons in one God. Okay? Three persons in one God. One what, three who's. He's the third person of the Trinity, which means we worship him, we pray to him, he's God. But he's also the spirit of promise. If you flipped away, look back at Ephesians 1.13. Because Paul calls him here the promised Holy Spirit. Now, reading that and hearing that he's the promised Holy Spirit would make perfect sense if you were steeped in the Old Testament. But since most of us avoid the Old Testament like a plague, um, maybe even an Old Testament plague. Yeah, I'm here all week. Uh, so, um, we avoid that so it doesn't make as much sense to us. Because you see, the Old Testament... Is the story of God working out his promise, the promise he made in Genesis 3, to fix the world from our brokenness, to heal our brokenness, to make things right. It's the story of God working out that promise through the family of Abraham. God chose this dude named Abraham. He said, I'm going I'm to fix this through your family. But the problem is that Abe's family is as messed up as everyone else. And so we consistently see things pointed ahead. There, there's a pointing ahead to a new time, a new thing that God's going to do. In which he is going to come and he's going to make things right. Where he's going to fully and finally deal with our sin. And one of the marks of that, one of the marks of when God will fully and finally come to deal with our sin, is that he will pour out, the language is used, pour out his spirit. So in Joel uh, chapter 2 verse 28, God promises to pour out his spirit on all flesh. Right? In Numbers 11, Moses, um, Moses is just... Uh, well, Moses has a buddy who's a little jealous for him because he sees other people in the camp prophesying. And Moses is like, dude, I wish everybody could pro I, I long for the day when God's spirit rested on all of his people in this way. In Ezekiel 39, verse 29, the pouring out of God's spirit on his people is a sign of his pleasure in them. His reconciliation towards them. And then this morning, Ann Marin read it in Isaiah 44, where, um, where God's spirit will be poured out on all. When God comes to make the world right, to end the exile, when people are writing on their hands, I belong to the Lord, he's also, it's the spirit of God that's poured out on his people. The pouring out of God's spirit on those who are reconciled with God is promised as one of the benefits of God's work to reconcile us to himself. So what that means is, if... That is happening. If we are partaking in that and experiencing that, 
The implication is that God has finally answered his promise to deal with our sin, to reconcile us to himself. Okay? So he's God, and he's promised to us. That's who he is. Now let's look at what he does. All right? Now, again, this is one sermon, and y'all's patience is only but so big. So I only picked four things. Okay? Are these the only four things the Holy Spirit does? No, no, it's not. Okay? These are some of the bigger ones, some of these that, that are easiest to see, some of the big deals. Okay? So the Holy Spirit is God. He's part of the promise of redemption, but what does he do? Okay, that's the big question. I'm going to mention four things, and the verses that support these things will be behind me. Okay? First, he regenerates. He regenerates us. That's easy. Moving on. No. Uh, the Bible teaches that by nature, by nature, all of us are independent of God. That is a way of, of the Bible describing what it means to be dead, by the way. Because we were made for dependence on him. This is the state that the Apostle Paul calls sin. That we are in a state of death in our trespasses and sins. And that is because life is defined as dependence on God. And so if you were living independent of God, seeking your own way, trying to pull value and worth from other things, um, trying to trying to uh, accomplish your own set standard of righteousness, your own hope in life and in death, then the Bible says you're dead. The good news, I mean, is that all of us are that by nature. In other words, like, there's no, if, if that's you this morning, there's nothing wrong with you that's not wrong with me. We're all in the same boat. The state of sin... And by that, what I mean is it's not just what we do, it's who we are, is such that we are stuck in it. And, and it is God, according to the scriptures, that needs to act to bring us out. And so the Bible calls this act of bringing us out of that state of sin, regeneration. Okay? It calls it regeneration. So in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, Paul says that no one can say, Jesus is Lord. Right? Right there. It says, once you understand, no one speaking the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Well, that's like, okay, Jesus is Lord. All right, let's try that. Everyone just try and say that real quick. But what he means is that that is, the, that is the central confession of being a Christian. In the early church, if you want to know what is it that makes a Christian, he'll stand up in the public square amongst all the Roman soldiers and say, Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is. <laughs> right? <laughs> why, why would that be such a big deal? Because they're probably going to get arrested. Probably going to die. Okay? That's the, the most basic Christian confession you can say. And Paul says, you're, you can't confess. In other words, you can't be a Christian except by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to work. Jesus says in John 3, right? John 3. Oh, that's really small. All right, trust me. Uh, Jesus says in John 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, regenerated, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I want to be clear. That's not just getting in. That's even recognizing it in the first place. Not only do you not get in without being regenerate, you can't even see it. You don't even understand it. Which means that I could argue all day in the public square about X, Y, or Z, of why Jesus is so great. Unless God is moving, it will accomplish nothing. And that's not just because I'm not that great a communicator, okay? So uh, the point is, is that Jesus is saying that you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born of the Spirit. I'll just leave it at that because we could go on with there. And then in Titus chapter 3, okay? 
Titus chapter 3, uh, Paul tells us that we are saved, that we are rescued. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, not by what we do, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. In other words, we are rescued, we are saved by the regeneration of the Spirit. You see, left to ourselves, we want nothing to do with God. Nothing to do with him. And some of you are like, no, I'm, I'm not a Christian, I'm, but I'm here, right? And I, I'm trying to seek God. Which God? Which God? Is it the God of your imagining that, that is going to bless you and love you because you're good? Because that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible says you and I are jacked up. Like, we're messed up. We need his mercy. We, he doesn't owe us anything. He confronts our pride. And he calls us like, now you've got to give everything over to me. Is that the God that you're seeking? My guess would be probably not. Left to ourselves, we want nothing to do with God. The Holy Spirit is the one who moves in us, gives us life, enables us to return to God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Without his work first, before we believe, we are stuck in our sins. And friends, that is why grace is grace. He moves first. We respond. With me? It's the Holy Spirit who does this. Okay? So, he regenerates. He also empowers us. Now, when I say empowers, this is probably what most Christians, if you're a Christian in the room, think when we think of the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, He gives us gifts. Okay? So, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11, Paul says that there are gifts that have come to us. All of these, and he's just listed a bunch, all of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions each individually as he wills. Paul tells us that gifts, that there are gifts that come to us from the Holy Spirit. Now, that sounds like superpowers, right? Christian Avengers. Like, that sounds like superpowers, uh, but probably isn't all that flashy, all right? Most of the attention when we're reading the New Testament, we look at gifts, kind of rests on a few things. It rests on things like prophecy or tongues healing miracles like works of miracles and like those are like the flashy things but most of the gifts of the spirit that we see listed are fairly ordinary things like hospitality generosity like teaching wisdom understanding of things now some of you are like well rick i know hospitable people who aren't christians what makes these gifts from god now that's a great question Here's the thing about the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the Holy Spirit creates gifts that weren't there in the first place, right? So for instance, I became a Christian when I was 18. All of a sudden, after I became a Christian, people started to come up to me and talk to me about things that were going on in their lives, generally things that weren't happy, which was deeply troubling for an introvert. (laughs) Deeply troubling. I've grown to be okay with it. But at the time, it was, it was like, ah, like, just trying to eat a pizza and watch TV show. Um, but that was not true before I was a Christian. Before I became a Christian, people left me well enough alone, and I was pretty happy with that. Okay? At the same time, I've always been pretty good about talking in front of people. I've always been pretty good at that. But now, since becoming a Christian, what the Spirit does is he takes that, and instead of turning it so it's used to make me look good, to glorify me, he's using it for his glory. Both of those things are part of the Holy Spirit's empowering. 
Sometimes he takes gifts that we've always had, what we would call natural gifts, as if somehow that just happened by chance, right? God wasn't involved in our creation, only in our redemption. We call them natural gifts, and he turns them to his use, to his uh, glory. And then sometimes there are gifts that we didn't have beforehand, and now we do. So he empowers for ministry. The, The important thing in both of those cases is that those gifts are not given for us. They are given for others. They're not for us to look good, feel good, or be good. They're given for others. So he empowers us for ministry. He also empowers us for life change. In Galatians 5.16, Paul says that if we walk by the Spirit, you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then he goes on from there to describe the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Okay? Don't worry about writing those down. Uh, But the point of that is that sometimes we can be fooled into thinking that we become Christians by grace. I I come to know Jesus by grace. We're all good. Maybe you're in the room, you're like, I'm good with that. But then what what we come to think is that now that we've become a Christian, now we've got to get better on our own. That God kind of wipes the slate clean. That's what Jesus' work was for. It cleans our slate. And now it's like, okay, now go fill the slate with good stuff, guys. Get on it. That's a lie, by the way. The Spirit produces fruit in us. Our life, we were made as humans to be dependent on God. Not just for, not just for justification, not just for being made right before God, but for what, what in Christian theology we call our sanctification. That it's not just by grace that we are uh, justified, it's by grace that we are saved, which includes justification, sanctification, glorification. We are meant to be in dependence on God and that dependence is through the Spirit. So he, he regenerates us. He empowers us. He also seals us. Okay, Look back at, at our Ephesians verses. Paul says, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit, the guarantee of our inheritance. Okay, Now when you think seal, don't think the little animal guy, or or, like that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a seal, something you impress upon wax. In the ancient world, the only assurance that something that was written to you or that a promise that you had received was from an authority who could deliver on it was a seal, right? It was a seal. It was a seal that only that dude had meant that he was going to make good on his promise. So the the, uh, 16th century reformer, John Calvin, says that a seal distinguishes the true and certain from the false and spurious. Okay, now stick with me for a second. God's promises in the Bible of what would happen when he comes to deal with sin is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. That's what most of us tend to think, right? Being a Christian is about being forgiven, right? It's part of it. It's part of it. Forgiveness is great, but it's only part of the deal. Because you see, the goal of redemption isn't to be forgiven. It's to be like Jesus. It's to be made like Jesus. It is to be not just moral, but so filled with the Spirit that sin is impossible. Let me say that again. The goal of our redemption is to be so filled with the Spirit, so controlled and in dependence on God himself, 
that sin is impossible. That's the road we're heading for if you're a Christian. Not just kind of being forgiven and singing with a cloud in the clouds with a harp. Maybe a guitar, but probably a harp. Okay? Not just that. It's to be made like Jesus. It's to be so filled with the Spirit that sin is impossible, that all of our worth and value flow perfectly from our relationship with God, and that we image God perfectly. Image Him perfectly. Are you experiencing that right now? No. Of course not. So is God kept his promise? How are we to know? How are we to know that God has kept his promise? Because if you're a Christian, you're probably like me. You're broken. You struggle. You have doubts. You have moments of growth, but then you're confronted with how far you still have to go. Does that sound familiar? So what is this eternal life, this life of the new age that God promises us? How is it, where is this life that's so completely identified with the Spirit? Well, the, the Spirit in us is the seal that it is coming. Not that it's here in its fullness. This is where some Christian traditions kind of fall off the wagon, is they, they want what is coming in its fullness now. But no, that's not it. The Spirit is a seal. He's, he's the seal of more to come. Um, and, and then what Paul goes on to say is this seal of God's promise the guarantee that this is coming, right? The guarantee. The guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So that's part of what he's trying to say. Now, in that, that word guarantee um, is in the original, it, in the Greek, it's the word erabon. And erabon, in the, there's no real equivalent in English. It was like a down payment. But see, in our world, a down payment doesn't mean jack, does it? Like you put a down payment on, you default on it tomorrow. And somebody gets your down payment, they don't get the rest. That's not what it was in the ancient world. You put that thing down, the rest is coming. It will come. It is a guarantee. If you have a guarantee, you will receive the rest. So the Spirit's work in our life right now is a foretaste of the fullness that will come when Christ brings all things to fruition under him. So he's a seal. Lastly, though, he glorifies the Father and the Son. Look down at verse 14. Paul says he does all these things to the praise of his glory. Now, look, this is where I think most uh, contemporary thought on the Holy Spirit runs off the rails. In John 16, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says that the Spirit is going to come. He's promising the Holy Spirit. It's really interesting. If you really think about it, if you've been a Christian a long time, read the Bible a lot, I want you to think on this. Jesus is, is about to die. And as he's about to die, he spends all of this time in John like 14 through 17 talking about a bunch of stuff, right? You want to know what the central feature of all those things is? The Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and their relationship in this whole thing. You and I think of the Trinity as a math problem. Jesus seems to think that it's centrally important to his people when he leaves. That what they need to know the night before he suffers and dies is how the Trinity functions. You and I might think that's silly, but Jesus thinks it's important, so maybe we ought to listen. Okay? That was an aside. So in Jesus, or sorry, in John 16, Jesus said that the Spirit's going to come, and that what he's going to do is he's going to glorify Jesus. He's going to take what Jesus has said, the things of Jesus, and deliver them to us. The work of the Holy Spirit is self-forgetful. 
It's self-forgetful. He comes, and it's self-forgetful in the same way the work of Jesus is, right? Jesus says, when he, came, when he came, he said, I came to do not my will, but the will of the Father. I came not to glorify myself. He goes, no, no, there's one who's going to glorify me. I came to glorify the Father. Jesus' work is self-forgetful. The Spirit's work is self-forgetful because he came to glorify the Father and the Son. Why? Because that's what being God is all about. Being God is all about being self-forgetful. It's about the other. Now, some of you who are John Piper fans are thinking, wait a minute, isn't God all about his own glory? Yes. Yes. The Father glorifies the Son. The Son glorifies the Father. The Spirit glorifies the Father and the Son. God is about his own glory. Quite frankly, even when, remember I said a few minutes ago, I talked about justification, I said sanctification, I said glorification, us being made like Jesus. Even in that, when, when Christians will be glorified, we are not glorified in and of ourselves. Paul says we will be glorified in Christ. We partake in his glory. So flashy signs that draw attention to the Holy Spirit, quite frankly, do not line up with the word of God and what it says he is about. The Spirit is about uniting us to Christ, drawing attention to him, glorifying the Father and the Son. If you come across teaching the Holy Spirit in Christian circles that focuses attention on us or on him, it simply does not line up with the Bible. The Holy Spirit came to unite us to Christ, to conform us to Christ, to glorify Christ and unite all things under Christ. If it doesn't point back to Jesus, one has to wonder if it's actually of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's who he is and what he does, at least in brief. <laughs> Let me take a minute and talk about why this matters. It's been a little more teachy than I normally like to be, honestly. Um, so let me bring this back around with grace and the Spirit. Christians, and if, you've, if you're a Christian, you've been a Christian a while, you've probably experienced this. Christians can give off the impression that being a Christian is about being in a layer. There's some layers, gradations to Christian life, right? There's this Christian, they're the new Christian, they like, they like milk and not meat. And then there's this Christian, and they're, they're a little bit better. The Holy Spirit Christian, they're even better, right? They're the ones who are like really empowered. They have some kind of experience of the Spirit that makes them more mature, more gifted, more, more. They're just more, okay? But look at what Paul says in this passage. He says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So two things about that. First, the Spirit is given to those who believe the gospel. The, the Holy Spirit is not a gift to Christians who get their lives together. Not those who pursue God or do some crazy work for God or spend a lot of time meditating or, or try and find some way, of, some way of drumming up an experience with endless praise songs. It, it is about believing the gospel. God is the one who enables belief in the first place through regeneration and the one who indwells us and unites us to Christ. And so if that's still difficult, look at that word sealed. Okay? I point these kind of things out a good bit, but I hope after a while we start to get it. That word grammatically is passive. We don't seal ourselves. We believe he seals 
He seals. What does this mean? This means you don't catch the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost catches you. That's what that means. He seals us, catches us, acts upon us. Why? Because that's the gospel. If our relationship with, with God is up to us, we're done. We're totally done. And I don't care if you've been a Christian a day or a lifetime. If God doesn't act first, rescue us, hold on to us, we are lost. Within seconds. If you're a Christian here this morning, resting in Jesus alone for salvation, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. You have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. You didn't do anything to achieve that. You receive it by grace. He lives in you by grace. Now lastly, I want to talk about life in the Spirit, if I can. Uh, the Christian life is meant to be the Spirit-filled life, but what, what does that even mean? <laughs> well, remember what I said at the beginning, that the Holy Spirit is both the means and the end of the Christian life? Another, the goal, in other words. When I say the end, it's not like you come to meet the Holy Spirit and die. I mean, like, the goal. What that means is that He comes to us to bring us into the Christian life, and a life permeated by Him, completely dependent upon Him, is the goal that we are moving towards. Some of us have, have come to believe the lie that Christian maturity means not needing God as much. Right? Like, I needed God a lot when I first became a Christian, but then over time, you know, I've conquered struggles. I'm doing better. I don't need Him as much. That is a lie from the pit of hell. The goal of the Christian life is utter dependence upon the Holy Spirit. You, if, if you've been walking with Jesus for, I don't know, five years, ten years, you should, need, you should be depending more on the Lord now than you did two days after you were rescued by him. Okay? That's the way this works. He is the goal that we are moving towards. You see, Jesus said this weird thing at the end of John's gospel in this whole teaching passage I was telling you about. He said that it's really good that he was going away. Jesus, Jesus says, I'm going away, and it's good for you that I'm going away, because if I wasn't going away, I couldn't send to you another comforter, another counselor. Now, that is, let's be honest, that is puzzling. If you're a Christian, you're like, why would it be better for Jesus to go away? I mean, most of us, most of us wonder what it must have been like to walk physically with Jesus. Right? Don't we? What would he say? What would he do? Would he play cornhole with me? Like, I mean, those are the kind of things, like, does he have fun? I mean, why would Jesus say that what we experience right now is better? It's this. Through the Holy Spirit, Jesus is not just with us. He's in us. He's not just walking alongside us. He's walking in us, and, in, and we are in him. Do you realize that? Jesus dwells in us by the Spirit. The God of all the universe dwells in you. So the theologian Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. He says, he says Jesus goes on to, to heaven to prepare a place for us. We get that, right? While the Spirit comes down in us to prepare a place for God. So let me give just two applications of that. First, power and holiness. Listen to me. The biggest knock, and if you've been a part of a 
PCA or Reformed Church forever, you probably, if you haven't heard this, you've probably taken part in it. The, one of the biggest knocks on the Reformed tradition is that we can focus so much on our sin and brokenness. That we can actually come to believe, maybe not in theory, but in practice, that we can't ever change. I'm always going to be broken, so, you know, I'll just repent more. Which really means I'll just confess more, because that's not what repentance is. We focus so heavily on our sin, we seem to think that God can't actually move in us, and that is ridiculous. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of holiness. Now, you can't change you. You never could. You never could change you. But the Spirit of God dwells in you. The Spirit of God still hovers over the chaos in your life, bringing order out of it. Now, it will mean giving over your control. It's going to mean dying to things that you don't want to die to. But the good news is the Spirit of God is a little practice in resurrection. So the first is power and holiness. The second is ownership. You see, we look at that notion of guarantee and we see it as having to do with uh, the Spirit being the down payment for us on more of what we will have. And and it is. And it is. But there's another aspect to this. (laughs) If God has given a down payment on us, what does that make us? It makes us His. God took out a mortgage on you. God took out a mortgage on you. He mortgaged us for himself. Your life, my life, is not our own anymore. He has purchased us. The God of the universe has purchased us, redeemed us for himself. And his payment to do that was himself. If that is true, If that is true, let's just benefit the doubt. What does that say about your worth? What does that say about your worth? Right? I've got a a friend who's an elder in another church who says, and, you know, he's, he's a business guy, and he says that something is worth what? Someone else will pay for it. God purchased you with his own blood. If that is true, why look at your success or your likes on Facebook to prove your worth? God has bought you at the price of his own life. How much more valuable can you be? And if he has bought you, if he's bought me, how can we live for ourselves anymore? We don't belong to us. We belong to him. The Spirit is the means of the Christian life. Without Him, there is no life. But He is also the goal, because one day we will be like Jesus. We will. The promise is there. Completely filled with the fullness of God by the Spirit. And today, we taste that through our comforter, through our counselor, through our guarantee. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we, as we come and, and try and wrap our minds around what it means to have the Spirit of God live in us, to have the Spirit of God unite us to Christ, in fact, to unite us into the life of God, we can't fathom that. 
we can't really wrap our minds around it. So what we're tempted to do right now is one of two things. One, we're, we're tempted to just shut off and go, I don't know what that means, so it doesn't really matter. Or we're tempted to um, try and reduce the complexity of that to make it work. I pray that by the Spirit, you would push against that and lead us just to worship. That our response to seeing the mystery and the glory of the Holy Spirit would just be worship. Who are we that you, O oh God, should come and dwell in us? Who are we that you should mortgage us to yourself, purchase us with the blood of Christ, and promise us more of yourself to come? We are nothing. But because of you, we are everything. We are lovely because you've loved us. We are valuable because you've valued us. We are, we, are, uh, we are to have glory because you've glorified us. And so we come in thanks. We come in worship. We ask just that you would press these truths into us. And if we haven't ever, ever come to embrace those truths as found in Jesus... I pray that you would do what only the Holy Spirit can do, create life and faith. Spirit, throw your weight around in this room now. Let yourself be known, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.